Hi, my friends. I do this work with all my heart for you. So please contribute generously to Future Primitive. my friends who listen to Future Primitive. I am on the phone today with Kathleen Dean Moore. She is the author of numerous award-winning environmental books. She was awarded the Sigurd Olsen Nature Writing Award for Hold Fast, A Home in the Natural World. She holds a PhD from the University of Colorado uh, uh, as Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at Oregon State University. She taught critical thinking and environmental ethics and co-founded the Spring Creek Project for Ideas, Nature, and the Written World. She lives in Corvallis, Oregon. I wonder if there is something more you would like to mention about yourself, Kathleen. Thank you, and thank you for inviting me to speak with you. It is a great honor. We might perhaps also mention that my newest adventure in writing is my first novel. I call it Piano Tide. And it's a story of a small community in Alaska that manages to stand up against the corporate plunder of their water. Excellent. Then it was published a short while ago in, on December 13th. There's great, uh, you express great poignancy together with your call to action in your book. And I want to go straight to the heart of something that really touched me. And you write, do you think the earth is afraid also? Yes, my friends and I were in a cabin and we were talking about the planetary emergencies, climate change, extinctions, this accelerating meanness and injustice. And we wondered if the Earth felt that emergency too. And the thought of that made us weep. We sat there, three friends, and cried at the thought that perhaps this Earth wasn't strong enough to endure or to support us in the effort to endure. Oh, to support us in the effort to endure. That's very beautiful. Do you, do you feel that uh, there is more and more of an awakening to our connection, what we feel she might feel and what she might feel we feel? with mutual respect 
we or at least we we need to be uh, the earth is resilient the earth has this incredible innocent urgency towards life and if we stop damaging her taking away her life force then she can bring that to bear on the forces that would alter the planetary conditions in ways that can't support life so as we restore a river the river restores us as we plant trees watch them grow we create places that we can come for courage and strength and example this beautiful back and forth between the grace of the world this great forgiveness that it offers us as we pummel it plunder it and then the earth continues to offer life and growth and beauty uh, in, a, in a resilience that that is is so powerful it takes your breath away I love that you used the word innocent um, this again there again you remind us of the great poignancy of existence because you speak about you speak about species extinction and i i think about the great innocence of animals it's one of the heartbreaking aspects of the planetary emergencies is that the people and the other creatures who are suffering are not the ones who have brought these changes about. It's not just that uh, there's so much suffering as a result of the industrial growth economy, but that it's undeserved suffering. The children, the species, the future generations didn't do anything to bring this down on themselves, and uh, they have no voice to speak out in their own defense. The, the way in which the United States is externalizing its disasters, externalizing its pollution, its extinctions, so that the, um, the consequences of our wealth are felt among those who are innocent and, and utterly not benefiting from the accumulation of wealth in the Northern Hemisphere is one of the great injustices of our time perhaps the greatest injustice in the history of humankind. Yes, perhaps the greatest. Um, you mentioned Rex Tillerson in your book, and I was, this is what I imagine when I see him on television. I I see this, this CEO, but yet I see this totally bewildered person since he has become, what do they call it? The uh, Secretary of State. Secretary of State, yes. Yes, that's quite a high office. He but looks totally bewildered to me. Does he not? I agree with that. When he was the uh, CEO of ExxonMobil, and people were saying that, uh, that his actions and his decisions were going to do irreparable harm to the life-supporting systems of the Earth, his response was interesting. He said, human beings will adapt to that. Human beings have been adapted ever since they came into existence. Well, that's something that we should think about. First of all, I think 
think he's probably wrong that we can adapt to the absence of clean water and fresh air, that we can adapt to the warming that is coming onto the planet and this increasing severity of the storms, that we can adapt to rising sea level. I don't know that we can without inflicting even more injustice on future generations. But I'm also worried that we might be expected, in his eyes, for to um, morally adapt, to get used to the idea of the injustice, to get used to the idea that some oh. people can make a fortune while other people absorb the injury from that, that we might morally accommodate the suffering and give up this notion of compassion as we accommodate ourselves to the changes on the planet. And so now I see him, and I'm wondering about if he's changed his mind perhaps a bit about how, how much a person can adapt to new challenges. Yes, I mean, uh, I, I think uh, you can live in total abstraction, I guess, but occupying that office is no longer an abstraction. It's about place and places on this planet. Yes, that's right. We have um, a crisis of place, do we not, as people are being driven from their homes by starvation or permafrost melting or increasing storms. And when I think about the comfort of place, when I think about the deep centuries-old roots that people have put down in their places, how they have come to understand them and love them, respect them, offer reciprocal gifts in their home places, what it would mean to people now as they are being pushed out, sent to who knows where to try to make a new relationship with the place. Do you think that um, by being born in a particular place, even if we have to move, we we carry the the imprint, the feeling, the meaning of the place within us? I think that we do, and so we find this homesickness as we move about. And it's people who are forced to move, and I also believe it's people who are forced to move by their jobs or people who choose to move also carry with them this uh, nostalgia, literally a, a sickness for their place. Um, when I was a child, I could not leave home. I was so distressed to leave home that it would make me sick to the stomach, and I, I would lie in the back of the car grieving. And wow. and um, I think about that now as an adult and wonder how we have suppressed perhaps this homesickness and um, and how it manifests itself now in new ways or perhaps even in some people, new uh, a new kind of fear that leads towards um, grief. I've been wanting to ask somebody this question for a long time, and and it is something you have lived with and pondered for a long time. What is moral? What is what is morality? There are um, ancient roots in morality. Morality is descriptive. We speak of morality as what are the values that people hold and how do those values play out in the decisions they make about what is right and good and just. And then we have also ethics, which is a normative study rather than descriptive. And ethics looks at morality and it asks questions. Is this the best that human beings can do? How do we choose one set of principles over another? What values are worthy of us? 
um, in mm-hmm. the, my field of philosophy of approaching the decisions people make. Reading your book, uh, I have uh, I, I have been crying a lot, and uh, I. I know I've been crying because this book, Great Tide Rising, and I'm sure Piano Tide as well, brings about a feeling of tenderness in me. And, uh, for instance, one of the stories back to the back to the oil executive, you have this story where you were in the in in a conference with this oil executive and then you were outside together and uh, he he said you asked him if he had children and he said never ever saw and underestimate the power of the oil industry and you were you were wearing high heels and he was wearing black rubber soles and it was icy and you wanted to ask him to hold your hand so you wouldn't fall. And you wished that you had, but you didn't. And it seems to me that uh, that, that kind of tenderness and poignancy, the courage to ask this person to hold my hand, that's, that's what we need to do. I hope that as you read the book... Uh Along with the tears comes laughter and a, and a sense of wonder, too, because I do believe that so much of our caring, so much of our grief is really a measure of our love. It's really a measure of, of our sense of wonder and astonishment and gratitude for this world that, that presents itself to us. And grief goes along with the loss of it, but we wouldn't feel the loss so, so horribly if we didn't love it so, so deeply. So there are love stories in this book, as as I'm sure you remember, is a story about a woman who seeks out the companionship of gulls and and just basks in the in the wind from their wings as they fly all around her. Uh, there is a story of of my grandson wondering where the the starfish's mother would be because they were sick and dying and they needed yes. mother. Um, so. Isn't our isn't our grief so deeply infused with love? Oh, absolutely, and uh, and and I see tenderness as I as I feel it in your book. I see it uh, I see it as the place between grief and joy. Mm. It's sort of I like that quite a lot. Tenderness, I like that. Yeah, like the bridge between grief and joy. To me, is tenderness when. Uh, when everything softens up. That's, that's very interesting what you say, because a, 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 the palm of your hand would be tender if it's been wounded. You would have to take a special care of it because it's yeah. been wounded. And you tenderize, I mean, tender is a marvelous word. You tenderize beef by beating it with a hammer until the... Until the uh, the, the, the sinews are, are broken and it becomes soft. Wow. So uh, what, a, what an interestingly rich concept tenderness is. Yes, once I lived on a, in a house on, uh, on an island in Greece and uh, 
the woman next door used to beat pulpo. How do you say pulpo? Yes, that's the yeah, she beat it so it would be so it would be edible. That's a great privilege to have been part of that experience. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> so you ask the question it's it's a great privilege to have to be part of the experience of life actually and uh, and to be remembering that we live on this planet and that it's so precious it's taken a lot of remembering for a lot of us because i feel we forgot the Native American elder, I believe it was Jack Davis, I could be wrong about that, but what he said was, um, if you would take away my hands, I could still live. If you took away my eyes, I could still live. If you took away my, my legs and my feet, I could still live. But if you take away the air, I could not live for a moment. How can we think then that our hands or our eyes or our feet are more a part of us than this air? And I was struck by that, by the vividness of the example, first of all, to think about all that we could live without, that we think of as a part of us, and all that we could never for very long at all live without, that we think of as external to us. The mistakes we make about that, the sunshine, the air, the water, the warmth, that are central to our lives in ways that these things we treasure, our fingers, are are not. So... Um, so I think you, are, you you raise a very interesting point that that uh, how can we, how can we forget this debt of gratitude? How can we how can we disregard it? How can we forget the body of our mother? There you are. I mean, so there's a great um, there's a great tide of outrage. I hope. With all my heart, I hope that there's a great tide of outrage rising. So in your travels around the country and your book tours, do you meet people who are truly remembering that life is impossible without total recognition of the planet? Their love for where they are, their place, the um, 
the foods that the, that the land gives them, it's, it's really quite remarkable when you ask people, you know, why are you doing this work? Because I work closely often with climate activists. Mm-hmm. Uh, why are you doing this work? The answer very, very often is, is rooted in love because I care about my grandkids and I promise them the world. I will not leave a ruined world for them because I love the earth and every injury to it is a desecration I will not allow because I believe in justice and the injustices here are absolutely unsupportable and have to be stopped. So um, love absolutely is the guiding force. I would say that... uh... At this point, uh, I live my life somewhere on some on some thread between despair and immense gratitude. Yes, and those, I don't think they're not unrelated, are they? No, they're both contained in love, I suppose. come in contact with are also on a very narrow ledge between, on the one hand, uh, hope and on the other hand, despair. And uh, one of the things that I think is important to think about is that if a person has this blinding hope that everything is going to be all right, that people come to their senses, that uh, that the earth will respond in a healthy way, um, oftentimes fall into a kind of moral abdication, because if you are hopeful in that extreme way, you don't have to do anything. And equally dangerous, I think, and equally a moral abdication are the people who fall into the abyss of despair. No matter what I do, everything is going to hell, and I can't help it, um, so I don't have to do anything. So either this blinding hope, which causes people not to act, or this blinding despair, which causes people not to act. Either way, you don't have to do anything, and you can ex- escape responsibility. But uh, that's, of course, a false dichotomy. And between the hope and the despair is this broad moral ground that people call integrity, that you act in a way that matches what you believe is right and good. So you act lovingly toward the earth because you love it. You don't take more than your fair share because you believe in justice. You you act on principle rather than on this expectation that you can that you can actually change the way change the course of history. One thing you can change is to make sure that you are always acting in a way that you think is right. That goes a long way. And 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 is is right love because I imagine that for, for me, principle is born from love, not love from principle. That's a very interesting point that you raise. You know, there's this great long-standing debate in philosophy between whether uh, our moral decisions are based on the uh, moral sentiments, the, the heart, love, uh-huh. fear, uh, or whether they are based on rational discourse, whether they're based on argument of projection of consequences, for example, or obligations. And um, so one of my friends, for example, has written an article that's called um, Morals. Are they more like beauty or like math? Is it more an outpouring of, of response or is it more like a calculation? And 
my own view is that the argument is useless because, of course, it's both. Uh, uh-huh. Yes, you do need to be motivated by love, but you also need to do some rational thinking about, about what you owe in return for the gifts you're given. Yes, heart and intelligence together. Yes. But then I, th- I think that's right. I think of you and your grandson on, um, on the beach, and I think of the, the awe of that small child and, and how he comes back to love each time. I mean, he doesn't let himself be, um, be destroyed by, by all this death. He keeps coming back to, to love. Not part of that that chapter is not in the book is the the relationship that that child eventually makes with the raven, who becomes his dear friend on the beach, and they kind of walk along the beach together. The raven about ten feet behind my grandchild. Uh, there is a natural joy, an irrepressible joy, in a child who makes a close, close connection with something that's wild and free. Probably for each one of us, I was, I was thinking when you were saying that, perhaps, uh, perhaps we could ask the animals, the other animals, to um, to form closer relationships with us at this time, so that we can be we can be more awakened to uh, to our connection. ways of life, or the plants' ways of life, or the mosses, if we could become students of the way that they they interact and that they affect one another uh, to produce this miraculous outpouring of lives, um, we would learn a little bit about what, or quite a lot about what it means to act intelligently and heartfully in the world. Do you think that uh, we are at a tipping point in human consciousness, you mentioned that more awareness, enough awareness that might become exponentially successful. Well, you know, I, I believe that we're at several tipping points or approaching several tipping points with a speed that is breathtaking. Of course, there's the tipping point that we're facing in terms of climate, and uh, if we don't make immediate changes, huge immediate changes, we will become caught in an irreversible uh, set of of alterations on the planet that I don't believe that we will survive. Uh, I believe that we're in a tipping point when it comes to the great conflict that we're living through right now between the old and the new Hmm. paradigms, the old and the new worldviews. I think that that we're at a point where we are finally recognizing the disastrous effects of the industrial, individual, um, separatist worldview that would have us be conquerors and um, lords of the universe rather than parts of webs of of relatedness and uh, mutual sustaining. And so I believe that we are just right, right tipping on this verge uh, of, of, of sliding into a new way of thinking about our place on the planet, where we understand that like all the other living things and all the other inanimate 
we're animate things on earth, that we're all part of one beautiful whole, and that our lives depend on its thriving. And so our work in the world is to nurture that thriving of the of the relationships in the whole. I believe we are on that tipping point, which mm-hmm. explains why it's such a brutal time, because old world views do not go easy into the night. And then the third tipping point, I think, is, is far more pragmatic, is that I think we're on the tipping point of finally abandoning petrochemical industry, finally abandoning fossil fuels in favor of far more life-giving uh, forms of energy. Hmm. I just wonder every day, every hour at this point, uh, in my own words, how hard is the patriarchy going to die? That's right, and how quickly, and how how quickly. That's a race that we're in between all those three tipping points, and, and the future of life on Earth depends on which one tips fastest and first. Um, it's incredible, isn't it, that we would find ourselves yeah. alive in this time? Yes, yes. This would be our work, that this would be our time, and this would be our work at these pivot points that everything depends on. It's it's amazing because, for instance, I had to, uh, fortunately, I, I, I had to give up any kind of morality and principles that I was taught as a child in Europe, in, uh, in, the, uh, in the segment of society I was born in, into, and I've had to choose my own my own morality and and uh, my my own way of facing the world with integrity and i find it amazing to be watching every day and listening every day to to everything that feels totally immoral to me it's stunning it's stunning how how completely the current united states federal government is disregarding long-standing standards of decency and human conduct. Astonishing that we don't have laws to to prohibit those kind of acts because they're so unthinkable. And everyone would rely on people's basic decency to restrain themselves from acting out of such utter greed and reckless disregard for other people's interests. Um, and so we're, we're vulnerable. We're, we're unprotected from this by our, honestly, uh, faith in, in human <laughs> honor. Yeah, right, honor, beautiful, exactly, honor. Maybe maybe the powers that be cannot take away dignity, but they certainly take doing everything they can to take away honor. Yes. Personal dignity. But see... Is it personal dignity rising, like Standing Rock, for instance? We've seen some beautiful examples of that. Standing Rock was a wonderful example of people coming together because they shared a view of what was right and good and supporting one another in exercising the, um, the, the power of, that, of those standards, of, of the moral standards, just was a beautiful example, and I should say that we see examples all around the world, particularly uh, in on other continents, of people who have extraordinary courage who are standing up against the plunder of the planet. Um, 
and along the west coast here it, it's uh, people are coming out to stop any um, expansion of the fossil fuel in mm. infrastructure standing against um, coal terminals and coal trains and uh, natural gas terminals and things and, and succeeding in, in ways that uh, I think surprise everybody particularly the petrochemical people this is wonderful to hear from you out there in the world is the ways in which people are determined to act with compassion, to be aware of and compassionate for the people who may lose their jobs in this in these great transitions, and to be compassionate for people who are stuck in systems where they are acting in ways that they know are wrong because they think they have no choice. Um, I'm, I'm struck by the compassion of people who are going mm. to jail. Uh, by breaking, because they have broken laws that they think will damage other people. Uh, it's it's hardening out there on the front lines. It seems like uh, uh, coal is a symbol of the patriarchy. Why is that? I mean, my word, of course, but why is that? Why is, why is coal such a symbol of of what is uh, what is dying? Well, I think your, your notion of this masculinist view of our relationship to the world is pretty interesting because um, you are digging, you are probing, you are drilling, you are you are entering, you are violating, you are in every way um, uh, uh, damaging the skin of and and entering into um, the the uh, body of the earth. And so the symbolism in in the drilling and the mining and the fracking is just overwhelming and sickening uh, to me. Yeah, yeah. It takes me to uh, your um, your imagination of your interview with Edward Abbey. Mm-hmm. Would you talk about that? People know him as the desert poet, the author of Desert Solitaire, and one of the most beautiful writers uh, about dry places, but also one of the most irreverent and irrepressible people when it comes to his utter disdain for those who would wreck the planet. And and he has quite a long list of those people whom he disdains. so what I did, I, I, I wanted to talk to him. He's been dead now for many years, but I, I just wanted to talk to him about what's going on now. So I went into all his books, and I started marking passages where he had spoken to the issues that are concerning me. And then I pretended that I asked him a question, and his answer then I drew from things he had already written, putting them together like a jigsaw puzzle. It turned out to be a lot of fun to do, and in the end it turned out that he has a lot to say about the kind of things that are happening now. Or he would have had a lot to say, and he wouldn't have even had to think of any new words. Please, listeners, read it. Read Great Tide Rising and read that passage, that imaginary interview of Kathleen's with Edward Abbey. It's it's beautiful. It's very funny, absolutely. <laughs> you say, you say that uh, amazing things are happening and are going to happen because 
imagination creates more imagination. It does. You know, um, Joanna Macy, uh, the great Buddhist eco-philosopher yes. in California, says that there's three things we have to do. Uh, the first thing is to stop the harm. The second thing is to imagine a better way. And I think that is very, very wise, that it's not enough to say no, that we have to say with even greater force, yes, there is a better way. Um, one, of the, one of my favorite lines in my novel, Piano Tide, is where, where a woman imagines standing on a mountaintop with her husband and imagine him whispering into her hair, we've got to find a better way, Rebecca, there has to be a better way. And I think that's right, that if we would um, pay closer attention to possibilities rather than being stuck in the way things have always done, that we can invent glorious new ways of feeding ourselves and raising our children and educating them and housing ourselves. Uh, my, my daughter is an architect, and she points out that so much of architecture is deciding between two kind of bad things. Should we do it this way, which is going to hurt the earth, or should we do it this way, which is going to harm traffic? And she said, no, we need to, to release our imaginations to think of the third way, the better way to do it in ways that's not harmful and violative of the earth. I think that's right in every part of our lives, that we just haven't thought of it yet. And we haven't thought of it yet because we haven't tried, and we haven't tried because we are stuck in this notion that the way we're doing things now is the only way we can. That's a big journey for a lot of us who come from a Cartesian way of thinking and are recovering Cartesians. And I was thinking when you were saying that, I was getting imagination. So go to the place in your imagination that says, okay, impossible from here, and then... What's beyond that yes. place of impossible? Yes, I like that way of saying it. That's right. Yeah. So, talk to us about courage. We were. I was talking with the um, Valve Turners. This is a group of people who broke into chain-link fences on five pipelines along the top uh, of the United, northern part of the United States, the, the pipelines that carried all the tar sands oil down from Canada. And for a few moments, by turning the emergency shut-off valves, they shut off all of the flow of tar sands oil from Canada into the United States. Wow. And then they sat down and waited for the sheriffs to come because they wanted to be able to go to court and make a defense, a necessity defense, arguing that what they did was, although illegal, justified in law and in ethics, justified because it was necessary in order to prevent a greater harm. Well, I asked them about courage, and I was very interested in their responses. One of them said, well, you know what, I was afraid, and so I decided I needed to practice being brave. So he went and he, <laughs> following the McCubbin's lead, he mm -hmm. chained himself to a gas pump until he was arrested and went through the whole system. So now he knew what it was like, and he didn't feel afraid anymore, which made me immediately think of Aristotle. Because Aristotle says, you know, how, how, do you, how do you develop virtues? Yes. How do you develop a virtuous character? And 
his answer is, you practice. You act like a virtuous person. And as you do that, it becomes part of who you are. And I wonder if that's maybe what part of courage is, is to practice doing what you are afraid to do. Mm. Um, Sandra Steingraber said that. Uh, people say to her, you know, you're so brave standing up to those politicians and, and going to do things that will go take you to jail. And she says, I am not courageous. I am afraid all the time. Right. I am all the time trembling. She said, but I do it anyway. That's so right. maybe that's what courage is, is being afraid and going forward. Uh, I believe that. I believe that. And, uh, and thinking it through... Like, mm-hmm. fear, is, fear is a moment, and then there's the next fear, and get through that one, and and then the pleasure and the fun of courage shows up. It just does it. It, it shows up, and then you realize that it's more fun to have courage. Well, that's the other thing I ask them. You know, what's your primary emotion when when you were being taken away in this police van, and they uniformly, all of them said joy. Tremendous relief and joy. This notion that finally, I am in charge of my own destiny, even as they were going to jail. Finally, I freed myself from the constraints of fear, and I am doing what I think is right. I am no longer living in bad faith. Um, and, And there they were, laughing and smiling and and feeling free as birds. Yes, joy in the face of this terrifying moment, really. I mean, here we are. I I sometimes I I sit in the in front of the television and and I, I feel very afraid. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's it's just amazing. In a way, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to care so much that one feels afraid. And maybe it's just, this time is just turning up the caring in a tremendous way. It's, um, it's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? There is so much to fear. But, you know, um, fear and haste are... The, are Two things that I think mark the climate change crisis, that that we're very afraid of it. It's so frightening that it's hard for us to even speak about it. And everything we do in response has to be done right away. Well, it should have been done 20 years ago. It has to be done right away. And fear and haste, I think, are are the two danger points that we're seeing from the Trump administration, is that he's trying to... Uh, turn us, he's trying to guide us to think certain things by making us afraid, and also he's doing things in such a hurry that no one has a chance to think about them. Very dangerous to democracy, fear and haste are. It's interesting because I just thought about um, the the time of Louis XIV, of Louis XIV in France, Mm -hmm. where it came to a time where the the so-called outside didn't matter at all. And if the, mat- if the outside mattered, then it had to be manicured. The gardens had to be manicured in the most controlled possible way. And, and the more controlled your garden was, the more power you demonstrated and the more you've demonstrated your wealth and influence. Yes, 
So it seems to be a time like that. It seems to be... Um... So tell me, tell me about... Uh, we're coming to the end of our conversation. Tell us, tell me about the... Is there a great opening that you see, Kathleen Dean Moore? Or a small opening on the beach? A great opening towards the future? Is that what you're referring yes, to? Yes, yes. Do you mean, do I see a door opening through which we might walk into a uh, sustainable, just planet? Yes, thank you. Ah. Uh, I see many, many, many doors. I see many, many doors slamming shut. I see people using every tool they have to create doors. I see, I see people pounding on doors. I see people slipping under doors. I see, I see people um, <laughs> looking through the keyhole to see what's ahead of them. I, I think that the whole notion of doors is is wonderful, and I'm so glad you brought it up because. Um, that's what that's what people are trying to do, isn't it? They're trying to find a way forward. They're trying to find a way uh, to to live the lives that they believe in and that are just and sustainable. Do I find myself optimistic that we will do this before it's too late? I can't say that I do. Do I find myself uplifted and enlivened and rejoicing and proud of what I see people doing? Absolutely. It's a thrilling time to be alive. Uh, I feel this is a really wonderful place to bow to each other, and I, I want to um, thank you so much for being with us today. And it has been my pleasure. I'm so glad to be able to change ideas with you. Thank you. And uh, I just want to remain, remind everybody that uh, there are two books that I hold in my hand. One is Great Tide Rising Towards Clarity and Moral Courage in a Time of Planetary Change and Kathleen Dean Moore's latest novel, Piano tight. Thank you so much, Kathleen. And my thanks back to you.